You know, I had a 27-year career at the State Department, and I thought, there's not much foreign policy that goes on in New York, but I've been really surprised that, you know, we're just a small organization, but we do a lot of and bring a lot of people together here in New York. I have a lot of contact with the consulates, with the missions to the UN. So New York not only being an economic center, but it really is a diplomatic center. And a lot of discussion, especially around the UN General Assembly, goes on. So our organization is playing a critical role at a time when perhaps governments don't talk to each other, that we can help promote dialogue. This is Podcasting with John Metaxas. Welcome. I'm thrilled today to be speaking with a distinguished retired U.S. Ambassador, Dr. Susan Elliott, who is currently President and Chief Executive Officer of the National Committee on American Foreign Policy. And Dr. Elliott, thank you very much for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to having a great dialogue. So am I. Uh, Before we start, and pardon me for uh, speaking in the third person now, I want to tell our listeners a little bit more about you. Dr. Elliott had a 27-year career in the Foreign Service. After her first career in academia, where she served on the faculties of the University of Virginia and Ball State University, In the Foreign Service, Dr. Elliott rose to the rank of ambassador, representing the U.S. in Tajikistan from 2012 to 2015. She went on to serve as civilian deputy and foreign policy advisor to the commander of the United States European Command. Before that, she had served as deputy assistant secretary of state in the Bureau of South and Central Asian Affairs and had served on the staff of former secretary of state Condoleezza Rice as director of the executive secretariat staff. Dr. Elliott has policy experience that ranges across the world, and she served in a diverse array of overseas postings, including Moscow, Belfast, Athens, and Lima, Peru. Uh, Dr. Elliott, there's so much I want to ask you about the state of the world right now and about the role played by your organization, the National Committee on American Foreign Policy. But let me actually start by playing off your resume. You've served both Republican and Democratic administrations. What role do you believe nonpartisan, nonpolitical, professional foreign service officers such as yourself play for our nation? You know, I think this is a very good question because one of the things that I think the average American doesn't realize is that most um, career foreign service officers, career diplomats, even career U.S. government employees have to serve Democrats and Republicans. So you look for ways. Um, In the end, what you want is what's best for the United States of America. And I think I found that it was relatively easy to switch between Republicans and Democrats and um, you try to understand the point of view. And no one ever asked me to do anything immoral, illegal, um, but what I had to do was bring forth with foreigners the um, what our leaders, the president, the Congress, were thinking, and um, I found it to be um, a really fascinating career. I think communication skills and listening and then trying to... Um, not only let people know what Americans think, but let our leaders know what the people in the country that you're serving in think is really the whole heart of diplomacy. There's been a lot written about a brain drain at the State Department now. How would you assess the state of the Foreign Service profession at this time? 
Well, I'm a little bit concerned because I have seen, you know, since um, 2017, I retired in 2017, but a lot of senior people um, retire or move on to other things, and a lot of positions not be filled, whether it's by career diplomats. Many of the leadership positions are filled not only by political appointees, but by, by career diplomats. And I think we've seen... Um, some of that improving, but what I've seen and I'm concerned about at the State Department is that we have a lot of good sort of mid-level and lower-level officers, but um, the, the experienced people like me have all um, left or moved on to do other things or haven't been asked to stay on in leadership positions. Let's ask about uh, your organization. I do want to touch on the certain hotspots in the world right now, but what role does your organization play? You're much more than just a policy shop or uh, an informational and educational organization. Yeah, and we're not, um, some people I think think we're a think tank, but we're not that either. We're actually an organization, we've been around since 1974. We were started by Hans Morgenthal, and we really focus, our specialty is on what I would call track two and track 1.5 discussions. Now, what are those? The average person probably um, doesn't know what that means. Track two dialogues are, um, you look at a, a foreign policy issue or maybe a conflict. So one of the conflicts that I was involved in and that our organization um, was significant in helping was in Northern Ireland. So we would bring people together, not from governments. Track two is you bring scholars, you bring um, experts together to have discussions, write reports, and then try to influence policy. So that's what track two is. It's completely non-government. They're private, off-the-record discussions. You can also have track 1.5 is you do have some government officials, but it's a combination of government, and it's not an official uh, dialogue like I would have had if, you know, Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice went somewhere. That's an official track one. Track one is government to government. Track 1.5 is government and private. And track two would be completely no government involved. All right. So we're learning the lingo of foreign <laughs> policy experts today. You mentioned Northern Ireland. Brexit may be imminent. There's the issue of the Irish backstop, which is a very big complication. Where do things stand right now? Well, um, you know, again, I'm not exactly sure because it changes day to day. But one of the things my organization, um, who was involved in getting the Good Friday Agreement um, uh, ratified and started in the 1990s, um, we hadn't really focused on Northern Ireland over the past, say, 10 years or so. And now we're getting reengaged to look at what um, what are the effects of Brexit on the Good Friday Agreement. And I think from the U.S. point of view, uh, especially that's an important uh, role that not only President Clinton, but also President Bush played when I was in Northern Ireland. Um, George W. Bush was president, and he continued uh, the policies that were started you know, in the 1990s with the Clintons. So um, I think the issue is the border for me, and that if there's a no-deal Brexit and there's no issue of of um, figuring out how the border between the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland will be handled, that could be uh, an issue because the Good Friday Agreement um, is predicated on or based on that that border will be open and that people will be able to move back and forth. And a lot of the trade and um, in Northern Ireland, you know, most of the trade that goes on goes on with. Um, with the Republic of Ireland. So there's a lot of movement of people and goods and subsidies and commodities. And if that border were to be closed, that I think will be uh, difficult for the people of Northern Ireland. 
Now, uh, we only have time really to go wide and not too deep on any of these issues. Uh, and maybe that could be a future podcast where we could dive in a little deeper in, into each of these issues. But China is very much in the news this week. World markets were roiled yesterday, and now they're bouncing back. So there's a lot of up and down in the financial markets. And it's all because of the increasingly contentious war of words between President Trump and China and the trade dispute. How do you view these developments that are driven primarily by our trade representatives and economic policymakers? How does a State Department professional such as you view that? Well, you know, the State Department, I think, is involved in the trade negotiations because it would be an interagency discussion, at least it was when I was at the State Department, I think still is, that even though Treasury um, and other maybe commerce are involved in the discussions, the State Department would also be involved. But putting that aside, um, I think, you know, I think President Trump is right that we do have a lot of issues with the Chinese that we need to uh, resolve. Um, IPR, you know, intellectual property rights, um, and some of the things that their markets are perhaps not as open to us as our markets are to them. Uh, the issue is how do we go about resolving those problems? And perhaps using tariffs and other things is not the the best way to do that. But again, my organization does, um, we have a U.S.-China strategic dialogue, and part of that includes economic and trade issues, and we bring um, people here to New York from China, and then we have experts from the U.S. to discuss these issues. We write reports, which again become, we don't attribute who said what in the report, but we have, those are public knowledge, and we try to use those to uh, influence policy. Uh, I do think, um, Dialogue is the way to go, so I'm glad that there is a dialogue between the U.S. and China, um, but uh, um, there's still a lot more to do. What about Hong Kong? Protests continued this past weekend there. We're not really getting statements from the U.S. administration in any kind of support for pro-democracy demonstrators. It, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems the U.S. stance is to kind of leave that alone right now. What was your thought on the role of the U.S. as a defender of democratic values, as an outspoken champion of them? Well, I think, and again, I can't speak to, uh, directly on Hong Kong, but you know, as a U.S. diplomat, that was always part of every dialogue that we had, especially in countries um, where there might be human rights issues. When I served in Central Asia, when I've served in other places, we always, maybe we didn't, um, say things publicly, but privately, that was always part of the discussion to, um, to make sure that our values were, um, were put across, or if we saw that there were issues with human rights, that we said something about it. I do think that this is, um, we don't specifically deal with Hong Kong. However, um, later um, this month, we're going to have some discussions with some visitors from Hong Kong who will be here, um, and we're going to have um, a, a dialogue with them. But our main dialogue is between the um, PRC, you know, the People's Republic of China, and with Taiwan. And human rights also is an issue that's, you know, discussed there. And democracy. Let me move on. As I said, we're going wide and not deep in this conversation. Iran seized yet another vessel in the Persian Gulf last week. Where do we stand on that? 
Well, you know, again, I don't speak for the U.S. government, so I want to make that clear. But I guess from my personal point of view, um, I'm concerned uh, about the lack of um, dialogue, the lack of interaction. And I think um, this is one of the things that I think speaks for multilateral diplomacy and working together um, to have um, discussions with um, with not only our allies, but, you know, people who are not our allies. And I think it's easy if you don't have any dialogue for mistakes to be made, accidents to happen that could then have catastrophic um, results. And I see that uh, I'm not an expert on the Middle East, but I served most of my career working on Russia and former Soviet Union. And I think that that's one area where we could... um, that we should improve. Again, it's just like with China, we have a lot of differences um, with some of the things that uh, Russia has done. But um, even in Soviet times, we always had dialogue, and especially in discussing um, the uh, nuclear arsenals that we both have. Um, I was in Moscow when we were uh, negotiating the the current START treaty. And so I'm concerned if, you know, that doesn't continue. Because, again, dialogue about weapons inspections, I think, are extremely important. And I think even military-to-military discussions are important. I worked at the U.S.-European Command. We didn't have any discussions with the Russians at the time. Um, But I think it's important just to keep us from perhaps making mistakes that uh, could be avoided if we had um, some basic dialogue. Are you optimistic about the Iranian situation? Not particularly. I think I was because I supported the agreement that we had. Um, but I think um, it's my personal opinion. But you know, if we can have dialogue with the North Koreans, we should look for ways to have dialogue with the Iranians. Because again, I think the Iranians are doing things in the Middle East that we don't agree with, but we need We need to talk to them. All right. You mentioned uh, North Korea. The National Committee on American Foreign Policy does have an Asia-Pacific initiative. And your group has done some specific things on North Korea. Tell us about that. Right. Well, we have um, uh, multilateral dialogues um, on Northeast Asia. And right now, the biggest issue for all of the countries of Northeast Asia is North Korea. And what is the U.S. going to do? What will the U.S. policy be? Um, How would we get... um, you know, Chairman Kim to denuclearize. You know, is there a way we could look to relieve some of the sanctions? And you know, it's not just the U.S. that has a big stake in this. The Chinese, the um, the South Koreans, the Japanese, and the Russians do. So we had back in um, in May, we had a dialogue among those five countries and the U.S. to discuss. You know, what is it we could do um, to help improve the situation in North Korea? So foreign policy really goes on in, in, at many different levels that the average citizen doesn't really know about. Well, yeah, and I've been amazed because when I moved here from New York, you know, I've um, had a, a 27-year career at the State Department, and I thought, there's not much foreign policy that goes on in New York. But I've been really surprised that, you know, I, we're just a small organization, um, but we do a lot of and bring a lot of people together here in New York. Um, I have a lot of contact with the consulates, with the missions to the UN. So New York not only being an economic center, but it really is a a diplomatic center. And a lot of discussion, especially around the UN General Assembly, goes on. So I'm really, um, this is a great uh, retirement uh, um, job for me, although I don't, you know, feel retired. I feel like it's um, our organization is 
playing a critical role at a time when perhaps governments don't talk to each other, that we can help promote dialogue. What's the view among the uh, foreign uh, policy uh, community about the uh, talks between Jared Kushner and the parties in Israel and Palestinian territories? Well, we don't really discuss that, you know, so I'm not an expert on that. But I do think, I mean, again, I would just go back to in general, engagement is good. And I would say that um, as long as, you know, that Mr. Kushner includes uh, diplomats, people at the embassy, and the relevant persons to help come up with um, with good policies, I think uh, it's good. To your knowledge, is that going on or do you not know? I know it was going on, but I'm, you know, I can't speak for the U.S. government. I'm not 100% sure. I think it is, but... Um. You had a posting in Russia. Obviously, Russia has been in the news in very, very much so in the U.S. in the last four years. Is uh, Russia our enemy? Is Russia our adversary? Is Russia our competitor? What term might you use, and, and where do we stand in U.S.-Russia relations compared to where we were 10 years ago, 20 years ago, in the Soviet era? Well, I served twice in Moscow. The second time was at the beginning of the Obama administration from 2009 um, to 2010, and it was one of the best times, I would say, we had in, um, in U.S.-Russian relations because there was a lot of dialogue going on. It's hard for me to say um, how I want to characterize Russia because I think Russia is a great power and uh, we don't agree on a lot of things. And um, but we need to have discussions, especially because we both, between the two of us, I, you know, we have the greatest nuclear arsenal in the world, and we need to discuss how we're going to, you know, control that. And and I also think we need to discuss if the Russians do things we don't like, like interfering in our elections or invading uh, Crimea. We we need to have discussion about that and instead of just saying um, I'm not going to talk to you because I don't like what you do I think from my personal opinion it's better to say I don't like what you do let's sit down behind closed doors and figure out if there's a way we can um, resolve our differences or at least make our differences better Sounds I don't like think we'll ever resolve perhaps our point of view um, with Russia. We have differing points of view but it doesn't mean we shouldn't uh, talk to each other or become enemies um, maybe we're adversaries, um, competitors, but um, even if you have someone who's your enemy, and what's that saying, you know, keep your friends close, but keep your enemies closer, you, you need to have uh, a dialogue. You were posted in Greece. What's your view of now what's going on in the uh, Mediterranean with oil drilling and with the relations that Greece, Cyprus, and Israel have developed, and now the possible confrontation with Turkey in this area. Yeah, that's a complicated issue that I don't can say that I can really um, give you a, a good answer on that. But I guess what I would say is having served in Greece and then having worked at the U.S. European Command, the importance of, again, us having dialogue with all um, the countries in that area. Um, the Eastern Mediterranean um, the Russians are there now. There are other, um, you know, uh, foreign countries there, and you know the problems between um, Greece, Turkey, and Cyprus have been around for a while. Um, but I'm an optimist, and I think uh, with dialogue, um, things can be um, worked on. Not easily. But. I'd like to shift to your career, unless there are any other 
parts of the world that you'd like to address. No, I'm, I'm, I'd like to talk about myself. All right. Well, so, so uh, you had kind of a unique career in the Foreign Service because you, you came into it mid-career. Tell us how that, how that happened. There's no one like me in the Foreign Service, I don't think. Maybe there was, but I, um, I joined the Foreign Service um, to, because my husband joined the Foreign Service. Uh, but at the time, I didn't think I'd ever be a diplomat. I have a doctorate, but it's a doctorate in nursing. So I was a professor and taught nursing at University of Virginia and Ball State University. My husband taught economics. He decided he wanted to join the Foreign Service. And at that time, which is the late 80s, was before the internet, before it was easy to have a career, and I wanted a career. Um, I couldn't really translate my nursing career um, for a variety of reasons, so I just looked around and said, okay, well, I'll take the Foreign Service exam and become a Foreign Service officer, and I actually, I think, was very successful, and I think the reason I was successful is because in any kind of healthcare, uh, just like it's very similar to diplomacy, what's the most important um, aspect? It's communication, listening, uh, trying to understand differing points of view, um, trying to get the U.S. point of view across, but then, as I said, making sure that the decision makers in Washington knew what the Greeks were thinking or knew what the Russians were thinking so that we could um, hopefully come to some compromise. I mean, one of the things I did as the Deputy Assistant Secretary of State um, in the Bureau of South and Central Asian Affairs, I had a lot of long titles, um, was to help the U.S. military to um, negotiate agreements that would allow us to uh, bring supplies into Afghanistan. Um, which there's another way where, you know, a lot of people think about the military, but they don't think about the importance of diplomats to the military getting their work done. Um, the military couldn't negotiate the agreements that we needed to do with the Russians, with the Central Asians, because one supply route that the military wanted to develop was called the Northern Distribution Network, and we would bring supplies, um, and most of them food and other kinds of supplies, to the troops in Afghanistan. And instead of bringing, having only one supply route through Pakistan, we developed routes where ships would come to the Baltic countries, Things would get put on trains, go down through Russia, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, into Afghanistan. And these, you just can't bring military equipment and things through the countries without having an agreement. So that's a lot of what I did um, when I worked at the State Department, helped the military to achieve their objectives. You uh, were not in the dark ages for women in the State Department, but you were in many ways a pioneer. What was it like in your era uh, to be a woman in the Foreign Service, and how has that changed over the decades? Well, if you think about that, really, women, if they were married before 1980, they had to, you know, quit. They couldn't be married and be in the Foreign Service. That all changed in 1980, you know, when the Foreign Service Act was passed. Um, I would say I saw, I've seen a lot of improvement, more women in, um, in positions of leadership. I was very privileged to work not only for Madeleine Albright, but for Condoleezza Rice and then uh, Secretary um, you know, Hillary Clinton. So um, I think there's still more that could be done, but when I look at foreign services around the world, we certainly have um, more women in positions of authority, at least we did. Um, 
and I think we will continue to do that. Um, I don't know what the exact ratio of men to women are in ambassadorships now, but there are definitely more women ambassadors than there were 10 years ago. Would you recommend this career to a young person? Actually, I would. I mean, to me, again, I started, so I would tell your listeners that I changed my whole life when I was 38 years old. So, um, and I went into a career that I really had no background in. I didn't go, I didn't study international relations. I didn't go to Georgetown School of Foreign Service. Um, but what I did do was um, have a willingness to want to serve, you know, the U.S. government. And it was a great career. I raised two um, children overseas. Um, in fact, my younger son now lives in Sweden because he loved living in Europe. He learned to speak foreign languages. Um, so I think it was really a great um, opportunity for my husband and me to be able to um, to not only represent the U.S. government, but learn a lot about uh, the countries we lived in. It's one thing to visit, but it's another thing to actually live and learn the customs of um, of and the the ways of the of the countries where you live. It's great. So it's fair to say, in your view professional foreign policy does have a future. I definitely think it has a future. I mean, I think that um, dialogue and discussion, as I mentioned before, the military needs diplomats. I think Secretary Mattis said that very well. It said that the better the diplomats are, the fewer bullets he has to buy. And I, as I said, my last assignment was working with the U.S. military and just saw the importance of helping the military um, to create dialogue. So we need a strong military, but we need a strong diplomatic service as well. Well, on that note, let's wrap it up. Susan Elliott, Ambassador Retired and President and uh, Chief Executive Officer of the National Committee on American Foreign Policy. Thanks very much for taking the time with us. Well, thank you, John. To listen to more podcasts with John Metaxas, go to johnmetaxas.com. I don't know. I hope I didn't say, I don't think I said anything too controversial. Yeah, well, you were very diplomatic. Well, you know, that's one of the things that um, uh, you learn is that you have to be really careful. I mean, a lot of times, you know, you, you can only say what Washington tells you you can say unless you're talking privately. So that's a liberation when you leave the U.S. government, especially in the dialogues. You can have, you know, I could kind of say whatever I want. I may not, when I work for the U.S. government, I said, well, this is what I think, not uh, in a public setting. I'd say it in a private setting, but.